Hi. If you're using Apple's podcast app, the one with a purple icon, you might have noticed that it doesn't work as well as it used to. In particular, it has trouble with password-protected podcasts, like the members feed. I reached out to Apple about this, and after a lot of back and forth, it seems like they're not planning on fixing the issue. We will continue to make the podcast available on every platform that will have us, but I wanted to let you know that Apple is clamping down on members feeds for indie podcasts. In fact, I was specifically told that we are prohibited from having one. So if you're an iOS user and you support indie podcasts, I'd suggest switching to another podcast app. I can recommend Overcast and Downcast, which both work very well and are compatible with all podcasts. And Z and I both use Overcast, in fact. And there are instructions in your account page for setting up the feed with those apps. If neither of those appeal to you, there are a bunch of other apps out there that will also work with the members feed. So I encourage you to take a look and see what's available, because unfortunately, it seems like the Apple Podcasts app is not entirely compatible with members feeds anymore. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 365, The Red Cliffs of Dover. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Eamon, Alexander, and Mary for signing up already. In 1050, Thorfinn, the Jarl of Orkney, went to Rome. And no trip to Rome is complete without a visit to the Pope. And when Thorfinn had his meeting, we're told that the Pope personally absolved the Jarl's sins. Which is pretty impressive, if we believe what the Orkneyinga saga is telling us. But did it really happen? I don't know. It's a saga. But the Jarl's presence in Rome is interesting, especially when you consider that there was someone else who was in Rome at the exact same time. According to Marianus, Macbeth was also in town. And while he was there, we're told that Macbeth, quote, scattered silver like seed to the poor in Rome, end quote. Now remember, being a tourist was a serious undertaking in the medieval period. It was hard and it was dangerous to travel this far. It also took ages to accomplish. People died on pilgrimage all the time. So why would Macbeth undertake such a dangerous and expensive trip? And why was he handing out even more cash once he got there? So much cash that it even got the attention of an Irish monk. Well, it's possible that Macbeth went there because Thorfinn was going. A shared trip could have been a way to attempt to strengthen diplomatic ties between the king and the Jarl which would have been something that they both would have benefited from, especially since, let's be honest here, Macbeth needed friends these days. And if Orkney sparked up its old rivalry with Murray, King Macbeth would have found himself in a really tight spot, as he was already up to his neck with problems on the southern border. He really didn't need any more problems coming from the north. Malcolm Bighead was rival enough for the Scottish king. So given the stakes at hand, it's not surprising that Thorfinn and Macbeth were in Rome at the same time. And there's a good chance that might have been the plan. A little Roman holiday to get blessed and bond a bit. But even if the Orkneyinga saga is full of it, and Thorfinn wasn't in Rome at all, 
which is possible. I mean, the saga might be just trying to make Thorfinn keep up with the exploits of Macbeth. Well, even then, Macbeth still had plenty of other reasons to undertake a pilgrimage to Rome. Crinan, the abbot of Dunkeld, had only recently been killed in battle, and it was probably in a battle against Macbeth. Adding spice to the sauce, Macbeth had also killed King Duncan, who was likely his own kin. And the king probably very likely barbecued his own cousin, Gilly, and then he married Gilly's wife. Oh, and he'd also spent the last several years trying to hunt down and murder Malcolm Bighead and his younger brother Donald, who were probably also kin. So spiritually, Macbeth had a lot to answer for. And in medieval concepts of power, spiritual problems were political problems. And so I'm not surprised to read that Macbeth spent some time tossing out coins like beads at Mardi Gras. He had a lot of spiritual debt to handle. I'm also not surprised that he gave a ton of land to the Kuldees of Loch Leven at around this same time. Because that religious community was within walking distance of Schoon, which was probably where Macbeth was enthroned, and as such, their support was critical to him holding on to power. Not to mention that Dunkeld was the spiritual center of Scotland, and Abbot Crinan had just been killed, probably by Macbeth's forces. So I'm thinking the king was probably trying to patch up relations with the Scottish church here. And so even though we're not exactly told why Macbeth took this pilgrimage, or why he gave alms and gifted lands, we can guess. But Macbeth and Thorfinn weren't the only Brits in Rome at this point. Someone else had some business to attend to there as well. And that business involved, in the strangest of ways, our favorite hot mess, Swain Godwinson. And to explain this third visitor to Rome, we're going to need to jump back a bit. You'll remember that Swain Godwinson kidnapped his cousin Bjorn, who was also the brother of the King of Denmark. And then, at some point, while they were out at sea, Bjorn was killed. Well, after that little adventure, Swain fled to Count Baldwin of Flanders, the King of Denmark's rival. And Baldwin welcomed Swain into his court and promised to protect him. And everything that transpired here was extremely sketchy, even by Swain's standards. Kinslaying was a big deal in the medieval value system. And on the list of crimes, this was way worse than sexing up nuns. And that's probably because the nobility realized that while not everyone was a nun, everyone did have kin. So cynically, you could see how if kinslaying wasn't extremely illegal, then violence in court could probably get really out of control really quickly. Because when it comes down to it, the biggest threat to a noble's life was another noble. And they were all related. And so, upon learning of Swain's treachery and the slaying of Bjorn, King Edward took an extraordinary action. He declared Swain a niving, a man of no honor. Now this sounds a bit like a playground insult to us today, but the consequences of this were even worse than being declared an outlaw. The king was declaring Swain a non-person. Which meant that no laws applied to anything that happened to him in England. So the king was telling everyone that they could go get Swain and do whatever they wanted to him. But then again, Swain was already in Flanders. So Edward was doing the punishment equivalent of, you can't fire me, I quit. Now, one detail that's really interesting about this event is that we're told that Swain lost a lot of his men during this whole fiasco, but we're not told why. 
However, it does give us a sense that what happened with Bjorn was beyond the pale, even for Swain's companions. And you might also remember that this entire ordeal was going on while England was trying to get a handle on a massive Welsh-Irish raiding fleet that was actively ravaging the Severn. Now, curiously, we're not told how that was resolved, if at all. The English sources go silent on this, which makes me suspect that Swain's insane antics actually hampered the English response, and the people of the Severn were abandoned. Which would have meant that the Irish and Welsh would have been able to take whatever and whomever they wanted without much opposition. So after 1049, the House of Godwin was not looking very good. And Godwin himself appears to have still been trying to support his eldest son, which was no doubt making matters worse. And we've all seen this one play out, right? You have a complete mess of a human being who is so terrible that you're left asking, how did someone like this even happen? And then you discover that their parents have been cleaning up their messes and covering for them for their entire lives. And you're like, oh, that's how. That's Swain. And I don't know if Godwin just couldn't see what his son was, or if he was just a paragon of unconditional love to the point where he was willing to burn down his dynasty and the lives of his kin just to protect his firstborn. I don't know. It's very possible that this was a dynamic built on some aspect of medieval cultural values that we no longer have or can understand. But whatever it was, Swain was sinking, and Godwin, bless him, seems to have been going down with the ship. But can you imagine being Edith or Harold right now? I mean, Edith was the Queen of England, and from what we can tell, she was politically savvy. And Harold, Godwin's secondborn, also appears to have had a brain cell or two. And here they were, watching their lives crumble in front of them, all thanks to Swain and the endless indulgence that he was getting from their father. The House of Godwin was faltering. And this kinslaying was damaging on more than just a social level. Bjorn was an extended family member of the House of Godwin. And he wasn't just some random noble taking up a plate at the feasting hall. He wasn't even just a random noble with a powerful brother. Bjorn was an earl. He was the man who governed over the East Midlands, and he'd been murdered without a direct heir. Now, he was Godwin's kin, so you can imagine that that might have gone to someone in Godwin's family, but it didn't. Instead, it looks like King Edward handed the title over to his own cousin, Ralph. Now, Ralph was the stepson of Count Eustace II of Boulogne a French noble who had close ties with Duke William of Normandy. Ralph was also a guy that Swain Godwinson personally hated. And we know this because we're specifically told that Swain was feuding with this guy. Because of course he was. So this murder of Bjorn resulted in the scion of the Godwin family being declared as a non-person and thus was permanently living through the purge. And it also resulted in lands that were previously held by a powerful ally of the Godwins being handed over now to the son of a French noble, who was also a close ally of one of Godwin's chief political opponents, namely the king and his Norman friends. So the House of Godwin wasn't just losing social power, they were losing real economic and political power thanks to Swain's bullshit. Moreover, the king's antipathy towards the Godwins was so significant that it was overcoming any bonds that were formed through his marriage to Edith. And speaking of that marriage, Edith still hadn't had any children. I mean, King Edward wasn't just mad at Swain. 
He was mad at the whole family. And that fact wasn't lost on Harold Godwinson. And Harold, unlike his older brother, wasn't an idiot. So while Godwin was likely at court pleading with King Edward to lift the condemnation of Swain, Harold went out and he did the smart thing. He gathered a group of companions and he headed to Dartmouth to search for the unmarked grave of Bjorn Estrithson. This entire situation was a stain on the House of Godwin, especially since Godwin was likely spending most of his time in court trying to back up Swain, which meant that Swain's nonsense had become the family nonsense. But Harold realized that while he couldn't control his father, he did need to distance himself from Swain as much as possible. And finding Bjorn's body was a first step in the right direction. And we're told that eventually he found it. But considering that it was an unmarked grave, I'm not entirely sure that who he found was Bjorn. But regardless of who he dug up, the body was transported back to Winchester. And once there, Harold and his retinue brought the body to Old Minster, the resting place of the Kings of Wessex. And Harold interred the corpse next to the body of Bjorn's uncle, King Canute. And he did this with all due ceremony. It was a kind gesture, and it was exactly the sort of thing that a savvy person would do in order to create as much distance between himself and his hot mess of a brother. And I have to think that Harold was also banking on the fact that if anyone would be willing to overlook someone's crazy, messy family and just take them on their own merits, it would probably be King Edward. I mean, you can even imagine that Edward might have empathized with Harold's frustrations, given that his own family had also been full of short-sighted and bafflingly vicious idiots. And Harold's efforts do appear to have worked. The long-suffering second son of Godwin maintained his relationship with the king, and it looks like he was well on the path of establishing himself as the good one, which is probably the best he could have hoped for in the circumstances. And meanwhile, it looks like Godwin was still trying to get Swain back in England, and he appears to have sought the help of a family friend. Bishop Eldred of Worcester. Now, Godwin and Eldred have been tight for years. The Godwins had even played a major role in Eldred's appointment to the bishopric back in 1046. And while we don't have the specifics of the discussions, it seems quite clear that what Godwin wanted was the bishop's support in getting the king to allow Swain back into England. And you can see the shadows of all the horse trading in the records. And it's one of those events that reminds us that the English church and the English aristocracy were two parallel power structures that were deeply intertwined with each asserting their own type of power and each having their own sometimes conflicting incentives. And what the church cared about was Exeter. You see, back in 1046, before Eldred was even a bishop, Worcester was part of a larger combined see that included Crediton and Cornwall. And they were all governed by Bishop Liffing, who was one of Canute's inner circle. But then Bishop Liffing died, and the court needed to figure out what to do with the sees that were held by him. Earl Godwin, who was then the king's top counselor, wanted Eldred to take the seat. But King Edward was already starting to get tired of his counselor's habit of putting all of his friends into power. But then again, Edward was also relatively new to the throne, and he was also culturally having been essentially raised in Norman courts. And he was also King Edward. And King Edward was the kind of guy whose own mum thought he was too weak to be king. So rather than just telling Godwin no, 
Edward struck a compromise. Worcester would go to Godwin's man, but Crediton and Cornwall would go to Leofric, one of the king's allies. In doing so, Godwin would get his pal into a position of power, and the king had the satisfaction of feeling like he clipped his counselor's wings. A little. Maybe. Well, it had been several years since then, and Bishop Liffing of Crediton and Cornwall was looking to firm up his position. Specifically, he wanted to move his see from Crediton to Exeter, and then officially combine the two. This would make his job easier, and it would also enhance his power, which in turn would enhance the king's power. However, you can't just move the center of a bishopric. It's not like moving dorm rooms. A change like this would have spiritual implications, because apparently the Holy Ghost is super sensitive to zoning laws, and the church was just one big HOA, or something. But, because Big J's man on earth had some views on gerrymandering, if Bishop Liffing wanted to move, he would have to get permission from Rome. But there was still the matter of Eldred. The thing is, Godwin's main talent was surrounding himself with capable allies. You know, so long as they weren't his children. And thankfully, Bishop Eldred was not one of Godwin's sons. And as such, he was quite clever, and actually a pretty gifted diplomat. He was also Bishop Liffing's counterpart. Liffing, being the king's man, held one section of the old combined sea, and Eldred, being Godwin's man, held the other. And that meant there was probably no better advocate for the relocation of Bishop Liffing's see than Bishop Eldred. Because in other circumstances, he would be an obvious rival. And it just so happened that Eldred's chief ally, Earl Godwin, wanted something from the king. He wanted his son back. And I suspect that is why in 1050, which was less than a year after Swain was declared an unperson for kinslaying, Bishop Eldred was dispatched to Rome on the king's business for the express purpose of obtaining papal permission to establish the see at Exeter, which meant that Bishop Eldred was in Rome at the same time as Macbeth and Thorfinn. And I just can't help but imagine them all like bumping into each other at the pub looking for a decent cup of mead and having a chat about how much they all missed the butter back home. Small world. Small world. But anyway, Bishop Eldred attended a council, and he obtained permission for the king's man to move his see to Exeter. And once that was complete, he began the long journey back to England. Probably with, you know, a case or two of Mediterranean wine. And on his way back, he took a slight detour. And he picked up Swain Godwinson. And it's not hard to see what happened here, right? Godwin and King Edward clearly made a trade. And Edward got a stronger footing with the English church. And Godwin got Swain. Which was great news for Swain, but was probably bad news for England. And given his failed son's return to the island, you might be tempted to think that Godwin was a wielder of supreme power here. But actually, I think this whole affair is evidence that Godwin was actually losing power. And King Edward, for pretty much the first time in eight years, was feeling secure enough in his rule to be able to directly challenge his chief counselor. I mean... Looking at the evidence, it seems clear that Godwin, through his ally Bishop Eldred, was forced to make concessions in order to get his son back. And just a few years earlier, I doubt there even would have been a negotiation. 
Furthermore, as I mentioned earlier, Edward and Edith had been married for five years now, and there still wasn't a child born of that union. Edith, as far as we know, hadn't even gotten pregnant. And time was running out on Godwin's hope for a grandchild on the throne, because Edward was now about 47 years old. And that gave the king a lot of leverage. So long as the king remained married to Edith, there was a Godwin in the royal bedchambers. But if this marriage remained childless, then the king could use the unfruitfulness of the union as an excuse to set Edith aside and find another wife in an attempt to produce an heir. The threat of that would have been obvious, and it would have grown more oppressive every year that the situation went on. Additionally, as Edward aged childless, the question of succession became a more pressing national concern. And the fact was that Europe was riddled with princes and nobles who were kin to either King Canute or King Athelred, and many of them were also already powerful, with money, experience, and armies. So Edward was now in a position where the rich and powerful of Europe wanted to curry favor with him in hopes of securing their place in the line of succession. And this was leverage that gave him even more power in court. And then, amidst these rising political tensions, an event tipped the scale. In October of 1050, Edsiga, the Archbishop of Canterbury, died. Now, Archbishop Edsiga had been an interesting character. For a while, in fact, he was both the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Shire Reeve of Kent, a combination which must have made law enforcement weird, even by medieval standards. But more importantly for this story, Edsiga was also the man who crowned King Edward, and probably, more importantly, was the likely reason why Swain Godwinson was finally forced to set aside that abbess a few years ago. And as such, on the great balance of English political power, Archbishop Edsiga was probably more on Edward's side than Godwin's. Except now he was dead. And to be clear, and I can't believe I have to make this clear, there's no evidence that this was one of Swain's capers. In fact, there's no evidence that anything shady happened here at all. Archbishop Edsiga had been sick for years, and it was probably a surprise that he'd lived as long as he had. But now that he was dead, he would need a replacement. And Godwin had just the man in mind for the job. A man named Athelrich. And Athelrich was a clear choice for Godwin here. Not only was he a monk of Christ's church, he was also family. And if we know anything about Godwin, it was that he liked to put family members in positions of power. And when it came to matters in Canterbury, Godwin's wishes carried a lot of weight. Because he governed those lands, and he was their patron. But at the same time, it was also pretty clear that power on the island was turning against him. His position in court had been wavering ever since Swain launched that treasonous war and stole a nun to celebrate. And the truth is that ever since then, things just kept getting worse. And I wonder if that is why the monks of Christ Church did something unusual here. They actually held an election and selected Athelrich. Now, this wasn't how the Archbishop of Canterbury was normally selected during this era. And I have to think that this election was intended to bolster the nomination of Athelrich. And then afterwards, the monks asked Godwin to back their nomination, which I'm pretty sure was just a formality, since this whole thing reeked of Godwin-style politics. 
But this pageant meant that this issue of who would be the next Archbishop of Canterbury wasn't just Godwin versus the king. It was Godwin and a whole room of holy men versus the king. Edward would have to take the nomination. Except for many in the king's circle, and honestly, probably for many who were just aware of what was happening in court, Godwin's nepotism was clearly getting out of hand. His daughter was the Queen of England. His son Harold was an earl. His other son Swain was occasionally an earl and constantly a pain in the ass. And Godwin himself was an earl and was basically running the show. Furthermore, all around England, you could find kin of Godwin who were holding positions of power. You couldn't swing a dead cat at court without hitting a Godwin. And I'm pretty sure Swain had swung plenty of dead cats in his time. So, giving this family another position, and not just any position, but the highest-ranked religious position in England, was a bridge too far for King Edward. And he refused the request. Godwin's kinsman, Atheridge, would not be the next Archbishop of Canterbury. Instead, that honor went to Robert of Jumiege, a man who had been with King Edward from the start. When Edward was summoned to England to take the crown... It was Robert who joined him. And even after Robert had been appointed as the Bishop of London two years later, he remained close to the king. And the Vita tells us that Robert was actually Edward's closest advisor. And perhaps most importantly, Robert was one of Earl Godwin's biggest political rivals. Godwin's political faction in the English court was well-established. And what the king was building here was a new counterfaction of Norman aristocrats and clergy who would be loyal to the king. And Robert was central to that effort. So appointing Robert of Jumiege to the See of Canterbury was a clear slap in the face to the House of Godwin. But apparently there was little he could do about it because the king got what he wanted. Robert became Archbishop Robert of Canterbury and the royal faction was ascendant. And it was a royal faction that was quite close to the power of Normandy. Now there's one other factor that might have been agitating Godwin here. According to some Norman chroniclers, when Robert was dispatched to Rome to obtain his pallium, he went there with one other instruction. He was told that afterwards, he was to go to Normandy and meet with their duke, William the Bastard, and tell him that he was King Edward's heir. You should see me in the crowd. Now, I'm not sure how much I believe these accounts because they're hardly unbiased. But on the other hand, Edward really did seem to hate the Godwins. And man, would something like that piss them off. So it's possible that this, like the childlessness, might have been Edward's way of attempting to clip the wings of a man who he felt he couldn't directly oppose but who he also bitterly resented ever since Godwin was involved in the murder of his brother. Yeah, remember that? There has been bad blood between King Edward and Earl Godwin for more than a decade. But regardless of whether the pit stop in Normandy happened, Robert left for Rome because he needed to receive his pallium and also because all roads in this episode lead to Rome. And after a few months, it was done. Robert was the archbishop and the house of Godwin had lost. And I'm sure that Godwin and his allies were fearing that, left unchecked, the king would replace all the ruling classes of England with Normans. But Godwin wasn't powerless here either. He actually held enormous amounts of power in the south, as he held both land and allies there. 
and taking into account his sons and other family members, the Godwins basically controlled about half of the kingdom. So while King Edward was doing better than he had done in his previous eight years, and he was probably more politically powerful than he'd been in any other time in his life, he wasn't entirely unchecked because Godwin was still very much a kingmaker. If the king died and one of those foreign claimants moved in to take the throne, it would be extremely difficult for them to be successful without first coming to terms with the House of Godwin. But speaking of those claimants, there were a lot of them. And one of them was Edward's brother-in-law, Count Eustace II of Boulogne, who was married to King Athelred's daughter, Godgifu. Now, Eustace and Edward were close allies. In fact, when Edward came to England to accept the crown, Eustace had sent his stepson, Ralph, along with him. And yes, this is the same Ralph that Swain Godwinson was beefing with for some reason. It was also the same Ralph who became an earl and got Bjorn's lands and titles after Swain, you know, decided to dabble in kinslaying. So Eustace wasn't just a close ally of Edward's. He was also deeply entwined in the growing political crisis that was developing between the king and the House of Godwin. In fact, for Eustace, Swain wasn't the only failed son of Godwin who was causing him political problems. He just happened to be the eldest of Godwin's failed sons. There was also Tostig. Because Tostig had married the daughter of the Count of Flanders, the same guy who'd been turning his kingdom into a halfway house for the enemies of King Edward. And that obviously had political implications for the Godwins, not the least of which because it was yet another reason why they were on King Edward's shit list. But beyond that, the Count of Flanders was feuding with Count Eustace II of Boulogne, because of course he was. And thanks to this marriage with Tostig, that means that was also something that the Godwins were at least connected to. So Count Eustace II had plenty of reasons to beef with the Godwins before he even set foot on English soil. And beyond that, there was also the political implications of succession. Eustace was a potential claimant to the throne, and he was exactly the kind of claimant that Godwin's faction opposed. He was French. One of the biggest conflicts in court during this period appears to have been Edward's desire to fill every seat with a Norman and Godwin's desire to fill every seat with a Godwin. And here we are with a childless Edward who is in his late 40s and as such we're dealing with serious questions of succession. And as that's happening, the Godwins just happen to be rapidly losing power thanks to a series of remarkably stupid moves on the part of Swain and also Godwin's remarkably stupid refusal to do anything about it. Which means that into this tinderbox arrived the king's French cousin, a potential claimant to the throne, and a man who just happened to have a lot of feuds with the Godwin family. Frankly, I don't know how you could look at this as anything less than King Edward giving the Godwins the finger. Eustace was practically custom-made to hit every fear of Norman influence that Godwin held, while also being directly linked to a bunch of other conflicts with Godwin's family. They say that no one can hurt you quite like family, and in 1051, Edward was giving his father-in-law the business. Now, the Chronicle doesn't tell us specifically why Eustace was in England. We're simply told that he met with King Edward, and he said what he intended to say. Which is not very helpful, and honestly really unfortunate, because this was a politically significant moment for King Edward. Especially if the Norman chroniclers are telling the truth, and he decided to bequeath England to William. 
I mean, maybe Eustace was promising to back William's claim should the Godwins put up a fight. We don't know. But even if Eustace had taken the journey to England to simply say, cousin, you have got to get rid of these Godwins. I've been dealing with them for years and they're trash. Just set Edith aside and hopefully we can find you a nice wife who doesn't have lunatics in her family. And who knows, maybe you can still have kids. Even in that situation, the subject of the meeting would have been catastrophic for the Godwins. But whatever it was, after talking with the king about something that was important enough to make the cross-channel journey, King Eustace and his men had a meal in Canterbury, and then they continued on, intending to go home to Boulogne. And when they were about a mile outside of Dover, they started to think about finding a place to sleep for the night. And so Eustace and his companions stopped the train, and they put on their armor. Wait, what? We're definitely missing a part of the story here, because that is not how someone typically dresses when they're looking for a spot at a bed and breakfast. Not even in the 11th century. But once they were fully armed and armored, Eustace and his men continued on to Dover. And once there, we're told that one of his companions found a house that they liked, and decided he would stay there. The owner of the house refused, because he wasn't running an inn. This was his family's home. Are you crazy? No, you can't stay here. And my guess here is that the homeowner probably didn't like the way the soldier was looking at him and his family, and probably also didn't like the fact the guy arrived like he was going to war. Which is reasonable, but also foolhardy. And predictably, the French warrior drew his weapon, and he attacked the man. But he miscalculated. It turned out that the homeowner knew how to fight. And while the French warrior did manage to wound him, in the end, it was Eustace's man who died in the clash. Now, the sound of this conflict must have been heard by other men in the company, because pretty soon Eustace mounted his horse and he rode to the man's house, accompanied by the rest of his retinue. The homeowner was standing at his hearth, victorious, and Count Eustace II advanced upon him and killed him where he stood. Then he unleashed his entire group upon the town. His soldiers moved from home to home, killing people in the streets or chasing them into the houses and killing them there. Once the people of Dover realized what was happening, they defended themselves. Don't forget that due to the requirements of the Ferd, the English were required to know how to fight. And so they quickly organized and fought against Eustace and his men. And what followed was a bloodbath. In the ensuing melee, over 20 townsfolk of Dover and 19 of Eustace's soldiers were killed, with many more injured. The Count and his men were clearly losing the engagement. And so Eustace leapt on his horse with what few men remained, and they rode hard out of town, and they headed straight for King Edward and his court. And that seems weird. I mean, Count Eustace II had just committed an act of war on English soil. You would think that visiting the King of England in that circumstance would be the last thing you'd want to do. But that's what he did. And he likely did it because Dover wasn't just English soil. It was also Godwin's territory. In fact, it was an important harbor that was probably key to their wealth. And so my guess is that when Eustace rode into Dover all armed and armored, He'd done so knowing full well that he was going into the lands of Earl Godwin. And I think they went there looking for trouble and did what they had to to find it. 
And I find it hard to believe that Eustace would have gone this far unless he knew that it was something that his cousin, the King of England, would approve of. And now that the fight was over, and it probably hadn't gone as well as intended, Eustace was now riding back to the king. To tattle. King Edward listened to Eustace's tale of woe and heard about how many men the count lost in the fighting. And then he turned to Earl Godwin, and he gave him a command. Earl Godwin was instructed to gather his retinue and ravage the people of Dover and Kent. The very same people that he was honor and duty bound to protect, and whose only crime appears to be that they tried to protect themselves from the brutality of the king's French friends. We aren't told specifically why the king demanded this, but looking at what Count Eustace did in Dover, and how he and his men prepared for battle even before riding into town, this looks very much like an intentional raid on Godwin's lands. And then when it went bad, the king seemed to be telling Godwin to finish the job for Eustace. And keep in mind that this event happened right on the heels of Swain murdering the brother of the king of Denmark, and then forcing his way back into the kingdom somehow, almost certainly thanks to the efforts of Godwin. Maybe it's just me, but this feels like the king was making a move on Godwin. But rather than directly confronting him, he had the king's cousin do it, and the king's cousin didn't attack Godwin either. Instead, he attacked a bunch of townsfolk who merely lived on Godwin's lands. And now that the cousin had failed, the king was demanding that Godwin continue and carry out that injustice himself. We can't know for certain exactly how this played out and precisely why, because the chroniclers failed to tell us what the king, Godwin, and Eustace discussed, and why they did what they did. But from what we are told, I think it's pretty clear that Edward's time in Normandy had an impact upon him. Because this feels like a move right out of Duke Williams' playbook. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>